What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to get into this Chris Sale situation, of course, 60-day IL with a stress reaction in his left shoulder blade. Earliest he can return now is August 1st, and I'm not betting that Chris Sale is going to be back on August 1st, right? Just a huge gut punch for this team, and it really hijacked the weekend of the Red Sox and the Yankees because all we were talking about after we found out this news was Chris Sale's going on the 60-day IL, and it just sucks. It flat out sucks. You feel bad for the guy. We'll get into that with Lou Merloni, of course, from Nesson and WEI. He was calling the game on Friday in New York, so we'll get into the Chris Sale situation with Lou in just a little bit. But I did want to start with the Patriots here because we recorded with Zach Cox of Nesson, of course, on Thursday, and we hit on the possibility of the Patriots getting DeAndre Hopkins, right? And now we're looking at a situation where the Patriots after we recorded with Zach the next day, Friday, we find out, hey, the Patriots are actually going to meet with DeAndre Hopkins. So this now feels like a real possibility for some of the things that we sort of got into with Zach. He wants money. Not a lot of the good teams across the league have money. So this does make a lot of sense right now that the Patriots could legitimately get DeAndre Hopkins. So it got me thinking just how good of an offseason this would be for the Patriots if they actually pull this off and they land DeAndre Hopkins. So I've been over the draft multiple times, but let's just look at the three big moves that this organization would be making if they hypothetically are able to land DeAndre Hopkins as well, right? So two have already happened, and one, of course, is incomplete because we're waiting on DeAndre Hopkins, but the first one was Bill O'Brien, a real offensive coordinator, which you didn't have a year ago. And look, some of that came out of necessity, right? It was so bad that you were forced into doing something, right? And it's just huge to get somebody in the building that is competent, especially considering that you're a quarterback, and we know there was excuses for Mac Jones, but he took a step back. So you needed to get a guy that is a real professional offensive coordinator in the building, 
obviously has familiarity with the organization, slam dunk hire with Bill O'Brien. The second move was drafting Christian Gonzalez, where now he, of course, hasn't played in a game of the NFL yet, but we're projecting, okay? But he is going to be penciled in to be the number one corner for this team. And this defense last year, the Patriots defense was really good. They were second in scoring percentage. Teams scored on just 30.5% of their drives against the Patriots. Only the 49ers were better. They were fifth in yards per play. They were ninth in total yards. They were third in football outsiders metric, DVOA. So across the board, the Patriots defense was really good. But the missing piece was that corner, right? And we chatted about this with Nora Princiati right after they drafted Christian Gonzalez. This is the guy they needed, right? And you think about it and you go through the end of the season. Justin Jefferson on that game on Thanksgiving, 139 yards and a touchdown in the game the Patriots lost to Minnesota. Stephon Diggs, 7 for 92 yards and a touchdown in a Patriots loss to the Bills. T. Higgins, 8 for 128 and a touchdown in the Patriots loss to the Bengals. Stephon Diggs again, 7 for 104 and a touchdown in the Patriots second loss to the Buffalo Bills. So those were four losses down the stretch of the season where the Patriots were burned by good receivers, right? The Patriots from the bye week on at the end of the season. So week 11 on, the Patriots were 19th in drop back success rate. So they were not good from a passing defense perspective at the end of the season, right? And the reason is, yes, they played some good quarterbacks there, but they also, they couldn't match up with elite wide receivers. So yes, we are projecting here with Christian Gonzalez. And I'm not saying he steps in immediately and he's Darrell Revis, right? But it's way more likely that you have a legitimate bona fide number one cornerback entering the season than you don't now that you have Christian Gonzalez in the fold. And remember, even going back to last year, it turned out the Patriots were right in letting J.C. Jackson walk because he was dealing with all these injuries. They gave him a ton of money there with the Chargers. So the Patriots were proven correct in letting J.C. Jackson go. But what they didn't do, they were not able to replace him, right? We found out that Jonathan Jones clearly is not a number one corner. So they never really replaced what J.C. Jackson gave you in 2021. Even if it was the right move to move on from Jackson, you were not able to get somebody that could play the way that he did, of course, in 2021. Okay, so you're really good defense. You figure right now you got your missing piece. And look, I'm not saying it's going to be perfect with Christian Gonzalez. He's going to be a rookie, but hypothetically, you have your missing piece defensively that you desperately needed. The last piece in this hypothetical offseason would be the number one receiver, right? The three biggest things, an offensive coordinator, a legit number one corner, and a legit number one receiver. Those were the three biggest issues or the things that the Patriots needed to address entering the offseason. They've already addressed two of them, and it looks like they could be on the verge of getting DeAndre Hopkins, which would mean they would conquer all three things that they needed to do this offseason if they can pull this off. Knock on wood. I know it's not done deal or anything along those lines, right? They still got to convince DeAndre Hopkins to take their money and play for them and play for Bill O'Brien and all that. I'm just saying from a hypothetical perspective, they would be accomplishing all three of those things in the offseason. And now, if you look at it, the Patriots' leading receiver last year was Jacoby Myers. 4.8 receptions per game. That ranked 30th in the NFL. 57.4 yards per game. That was 32nd in the NFL. This is your number one weapon last year. He was overtaxed as a number one guy. I like Jacoby Myers. He's a fine player. He's a very good player, but he's not an elite player, right? And especially when right now at this particular point in time, Mac Jones is not a quarterback that's going to elevate everybody around him right now, right? Still very, very young in his career. I don't project Mac to ever be that type of quarterback, but you get the point. You need weapons to lift the quarterback. Think about the 49ers, right? What guys like Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk and George Kittle did for Brock Purdy, the rookie last year. Think about what Justin Jefferson does for Kirk Cousins, what St. Brown 
does for Jared Goff. They elevate these quarterbacks, right? That's what DeAndre Hopkins would do for Mac Jones. 79.7 yards per game was 10th of the NFL compared to Jacoby Myers at 57.4, 7.1 receptions per game. That was fourth in the NFL. So I know what you're saying. Like, why are you comparing Jacoby Myers to DeAndre Hopkins? Everybody knows Hopkins better. Well, that's my point. This was your number one receiver last year in Jacoby Myers. You have an opportunity to get like an actual real bona fide elite level receiver in DeAndre Hopkins. This is the move that the Patriots need to make. It's the one thing left on the to-do list. I thought that, quite frankly, that ship had sailed this offseason because Remember, we're talking about, hey, could they trade for a Jerry Judy type? What about a Keenan Allen? Remember, that was, those are the discussions we were having. At one point, say, hey, could you hypothetically trade for Mike Evans? Or, hey, did the Patriots draft a wide receiver with their first round pick? So we thought that maybe, or at least I did, maybe you thought that this is a possibility the whole time. But I was in a position where I thought, okay, maybe the ship has sailed on a number one receiver. As much as I wanted it this offseason, it's just unfortunately not going to happen. And now this thing is right here for you. So if you complete this, if you land DeAndre Hopkins, this is essentially a perfect offseason for Bill Belichick. I would give it without question an A. It's already been a really good offseason. Just imagine if you actually do that. A number one receiver, a number one corner, and a good offensive coordinator all in the same offseason. Now, part of that is they put themselves in this position, right? But that is almost impossible to do. How often do we see a team get a legit number one receiver and a legit number one corner in the same offseason. And like I said, I know we're projecting here, but the Jets, I guess you could argue they drafted two in Garrett Wilson and Sauce Gardner. Miami did it in two different offseasons, right? Where they got Jalen Ramsey this offseason. The year prior, of course, they make the trade for Tyree Kill. So it's just very rare to see a team adding those two. Like these are premium, premium positions. We're talking about corner and receiver and you may do it in the same offseason. It's just very, very rare. So I wanted to look back at sort of the best off seasons that we've seen in recent Boston sports history and see where this DeAndre Hopkins one would sort of rank. So I'll go post 2000. I'm not going back to the 80s or the 90s. I'll go post 2000. So one that comes to mind is the 2018 Red Sox. And that's, of course, when Dave Dombrowski was running the organization. So Dave Dombrowski, first off, he hires Alex Cora from the Astros, which the Astros at that particular point in time, we would find out that there was a little bit of controversy there. But they were the smartest team in baseball. They've still been the best team in baseball, right? Like over this six, seven year period. So you get a really good manager in Alex Cora and you sign J.D. Martinez. J.D. was huge because remember, in 2017, the Red Sox did not have that slugger in the middle of the lineup, right? Ortiz had retired in 16. And then in that following season in 2017, the power numbers for the team really dipped off. And at times, remember it? At one point, Mookie was hitting cleanup. It's like, what the fuck is Mookie doing hitting cleanup? This guy's the best leadoff hitter in the game. But anyway, I digress. But that was the issue. They didn't have that stabilizing force in the middle of the lineup that they had for so many years with David Ortiz. And if you look at that season, 2017, the Red Sox, just 168 home runs, that was 27th. Their slugging percentage was 407, which was 26. This is the Boston Red Sox, right? They were not hitting for power at all in 17. Well, what happens in 18 after you sign J.D.? The Red Sox hit 208 home runs, which was ninth compared to 168 the year prior. Their slugging percentage jumps to 453, which was first in Major League Baseball during that stretch, compared to 407 in the prior season in 2017. And it just so happened that J.D. Martinez that year hit 43 of the home runs, second in Major League Baseball. He slugged 629, which was second in all of Major League Baseball as well. So second in home runs, second in slugging percentage, he completely changed that lineup. So we know the history. The Red Sox win the World Series. Cora and J.D. Martinez were the missing pieces. I talk about the Patriots, the missing pieces, the corner, the receiver, the number one corner, the number one receiver, the 
things that were missing for the Red Sox, the slugger, and the manager, and you got those both in 2018. Okay, the 2008 Celtics are clearly up there as well, because remember how poorly that offseason started. We thought as fans, you're getting Greg Oden or you're getting Kevin Durant, right? The Oden thing obviously would have been a disaster now, looking back at it from a health perspective. And I know Danny loved Kevin Durant, so maybe he would have drafted Kevin Durant even if they got the number one pick, right? But then you end up, the Celtics do with the fifth pick, and you're thinking, oh man, what's going to happen? Like, is Paul Pierce just going to be done as a Celtic? Are they going to move on from Pierce, right? Because you were basically tanking at the end of the season to try to get one of these two guys. You don't end up getting one of those two guys in the draft. You're sitting there with the fifth pick. What do you do? So they make the trade for Ray Allen on draft night, and you're thinking, Pierce and Ray Allen? Like, okay, this is a playoff team, but they're not really a contender, right? They're not winning a championship with just Ray Allen and Paul Pierce. And it did feel like maybe there was going to be some redundancy, two guys that have the ball a lot in their hands. Because remember, Ray before Boston was, he had the ball in his hands all the time. But then the Garnett trade happens, right? And you're like, holy shit, they're getting Kevin Garnett and he changes everything. The Celtics finished that season with a 98.1 defensive rating, first in the NBA. They were 2.4 points per 100 possessions better than anybody else. They were, it wasn't even close how much better they were than everybody defensively. And the reason for that is Garnett, he wins defensive player of the year. He sets the culture in the locker room and defensively he sets the tone for the whole team and they that was their DNA they were built on their defense because of Kevin Garnett so that would certainly be up there the missing piece was hey you needed a franchise level player especially considering everything that went wrong with the ping pong balls you needed you got a shooter for Paul Pierce to play with him and you got one of the best big men in the entire NBA right then you look at the 2004 Red Sox the missing piece they needed a legitimate bona fide starting pitcher that could pitch in big games, right? Because they had Pedro Martinez, but they needed one more guy. And remember at that point in time, Pedro was having a lot of issues with the New York Yankees. And the Red Sox were just coming off that very difficult seven-game series to the Yankees. Tim Wakefield, Aaron Boone hits the home run. We all remember the history. But you go out and you get Kurt Schilling. That season, Schilling was awesome. A 106 whip that was fourth among starters. And we, of course, know the big game, the bloody sock game. So Schilling was that pitcher the Red Sox needed to put you over the top. And he came with credibility, right? Because Kurt Schilling had already been a World Series MVP while he was pitching for the Arizona Diamondbacks. So you needed that guy that you could put in the top of the rotation along with Pedro Martinez. And he just kind of came with that. And, you know, a lot of stuff happened post-career for Kurt Schilling. But he came with that big personality, that confidence that it felt like the team sort of took on some of that personality at times. 2013, in terms of the offseason for the Red Sox, that was an interesting one, the year they won the World Series, because I still, the whole situation too, just like the magical run that team had, they didn't lose like back-to-back games. They won like, it felt like they won every series, but that that was just a weird offseason, like Napoli, Victorino, Koji, everything just sort of hit, but it wasn't like the big move that you made, right? Like I talk about 04, I talk about Garnett in 08, and some of the other ones I'll get into here. So I didn't put 13 in there just because it wasn't that big move. Like it was, it's staring at the Patriots, right? They need a receiver and they needed a corner. They got both those things. They needed an offensive coordinator. They of course got the offensive coordinator. Well, not going to work. They didn't get the receiver yet. I'm hopeful they'll get the receiver. But the 2013 Red Sox team, it wasn't like the one big move that put you over the top, right? All right. For the Patriots, I would look at 03. The Rodney Harrison signing changed your defense. He became a pillar for those back-to-back Super Bowls, of course, and they, of course, traded Lawyer Malloy. We all remember that. In fact, we talked to Drew Bledsoe about that a couple of months ago. And if you look at it from a Patriots perspective, in 2002, 
So the year after the first Super Bowl, they gave up 21.6 points per game, which was 16th in the NFL. The defense was not great in 2002. 2003, the defense gave up 14.9 points per game. Imagine that. First in the NFL. So you're talking about a 6.7 point improvement. More than a touchdown, almost a touchdown and an extra point better with Rodney Harrison there. Rodney's first year in 2003, he's a first-team All-Pro. Now, it wasn't all because of Rodney. You had a Hall of Famer in Ty Law. You had a Hall of Famer in Richard Seymour. You had incredibly smart players like Teddy Bruschi and Mike Vrabel, but he was that final piece, right? Rodney, getting back to this whole idea of culture, he was a guy that came in with bravado. He was a guy that was perceived to be a dirty player. He came in with a ton of swagger, and he was the perfect fit for that Bill Belichick defense. Still one of Bill Belichick's favorite players of all time. The guy is, he he's one of my favorite Patriots of all time. I mean, it's basically him, Edelman, Gronk, like non-Brady division. Rodney was awesome. I loved watching Rodney Harrison play. So that was the big move in 03 in terms of the offseason. You look at 2014, we all remember that. The Patriots get the ultimate hired gun, Darrell Rivas. Now, you did get a healthy Gronk back that season. Remember, he's coming off the torn ACL in 2013, or is it about whatever it was? Gronk was dealing with an injury. Yeah, I think it was the, the Browns game the year prior where he tore the ACL. And he finally, I'd say around like week five, week six, we started to see Gronk look like Gronk again. So that was obviously big. But Revis, man, he lets you do so many things defensively, right? I remember one of the interesting things that they did with him is they would put him on the number two receiver and they would double the number one. So he just lets you do so many different things from a defensive perspective. And it was just so epic having that guy on the team. Of course, considering the whole dynamic with the Jets, he comes here for a year. He wins a Super Bowl. And remember, you needed to address that position, just like I'm talking about with this current Patriots team. You needed the corner because Tlaib went for the big money. He goes to Denver and you actually found a way to upgrade. Darrell Revis in 2014 was better than Tlaib in 2014. Now, Tlaib was better after that. 15, he was good and didn't matter because, of course, the Patriots didn't sign Revis to that deal. That was the smart move. Obviously, we found out the Jets way overpay him, right? But that was a huge hole, and the Patriots immediately fixed that. So if I was going to rank them these offseasons, I would go the 2008 Celtics first. That organization was in a horrible spot after missing out on the draft picks, as we said. First and second pick, you don't get either one of those. So you're thinking, what's going to happen long term, as I alluded to with Pierce? So Garnett and Ray Allen, those deals completely changed the organization. Who knows what the Celtics look like if they can't pull off the Garnett trade and they can't pull off the Ray Allen trade, right? I would put the 2018 Red Sox offseason second to get the manager and the slugger to replace David Ortiz in the same year. You got the best guy on the market. Like J.D. Martinez was legitimately the best hitter on the market, and the Red Sox ended up getting him, and they got him at a reasonable deal because Dombrowski waited out Scott Boris. So he even got him at a good contract. J.D. was unbelievable for this team. I know last year wasn't great, although he's hitting well this season, but J.D. was, he was the perfect guy for that lineup. And then I'll put the 04 Red Sox third on this list because you were close in 03, but you needed another premium starter to go along with Pedro and just the amount of balls that Kurt Schilling pitched with. This guy was incredibly tough, incredibly good in big games. They needed that. I'll put the 04 Patriots next. The reason I have, or 03 Patriots rather, next. The reason I have them lower is they did win a Super Bowl in 01 with Lawyer Malloy, right? Now, obviously, Rodney was better. I was talking about that, but I can't put them in front of those other three just because they had already won in 01. And then I put Revis, the 2014 offseason for the Patriots last on this list, because obviously he was super, super impactful for this team. All right. So if you look at all those teams, they resulted in championships, right? Those were the moves to put you over the top. You needed big, big pieces, a slugger, a manager, a starting pitcher, a corner, a safety, a defensive player of the year in Kevin Garnett, right? Now, obviously, this Patriots team, even with DeAndre Hopkins, if they can hypothetically land him, as we're talking about, 
it's not on the same level as those teams in terms of you're not looking at them and saying, hey, they're going to win the Super Bowl, right? But in terms of the impact, the impact that would have this offseason, it's massive in a similar way to those teams, right? The big thing with those other teams, you knew, okay, you have Garnett, you're the favorite. You have JD, you're a contender, right? You get Schilling, you're right there again with the Yankees. So those moves were for players to answer your questions, answer the issues you had with the team. This team, if you look at it right now, Gonzalez should make you an incredible defense because you have that number one corner. We're talking with Zach Cox about this. You can be more versatile. The O'Brien move should make you a competent offense. And the hypothetical Hopkins signing would give you something that teams have to game plan for. It would make this offense certainly make more sense than it currently does right now. But with all that being said, the difference here is like those teams are going to win championships. We look at it. It comes down to Mac, right? With this great offseason, and I'm hyping up this offseason for the Patriots, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself because I really want them to get DeAndre Hopkins. But now this all comes down to Mac Jones. Because if you do get Hopkins, you got him an offensive coordinator. The defense is going to be unbelievable for this team next season. Now it all comes down to the quarterback. That big year three for Mac Jones. What we saw his rookie year, you felt like, okay, the Patriots probably have their guy for a significant amount of time. Now, I've never been the biggest Mac guy. I don't think there's a huge upside there, but I thought, okay, you at least have a competent quarterback. He's good enough if the team around him is going to be good. He's not going to carry the organization, but he can certainly be a pretty good NFL quarterback the way that he performed in his rookie season. That's the conclusion I came away with. Now, after last season, you have questions and we've been over it time and time again about the coaching staff and all that, but the quarterback has to be better as well. And if you were sort of looking at a script for how to, Fuck up the quarterback last year. The Patriots did it, right? With with this situation where he didn't have a ton of weapons. One of his best weapons, Kendrick Bourne, was being benched. The offensive coordinator situation was a mess. But basically, it's the complete opposite this offseason. They have almost done everything, save the DeAndre Hopkins thing, which is really, really big if they can pull that off. They've done almost everything they possibly could to give Mac Jones a legitimate, bona fide opportunity to make a run back to the postseason. So I cannot wait to see if they end up landing DeAndre Hopkins. And if they do... Now it's all on Mac Jones to get this team back to the playoffs in 2023. All right, a lot more to get into. I do want to get into a hiring that the Celtics made over the weekend, and we'll also chat with my my buddy Lou Merloni coming up next. We'll get into this big, unfortunate injury once again for Chris Sale. It's almost time to crown an NBA champion, and FanDuel wants you to be part of the excitement because right now, new customers can get a no-sweat-first bet up to $2,500. That's $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. All right, and what I'm looking for, how about this one? A same-game parlay. I'm going back to Jamal Murray because he keeps hitting for me, so I'm going plus 284, Jamal Murray to hit three threes, Nuggets on the money line, Jamal Murray to have eight assists. So you have Jamal Murray, eight assists, Jamal Murray, 25 points, Jamal Murray, three made threes, and the Nuggets on the money line. You can get that at plus 284. And you're going to love the app. You have great promotions every day. It's safe and secure, and you get paid instantly. You cannot beat that. There's no better place to bet on all the finals action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and get a no-sweat-first bet up to $2,500. That's FanDuel.com slash Pike. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit ringer.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. 
Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, you see him on Nesson calling Red Sox games. You hear him on the Red Sox radio network as well. It is my old buddy, Lou Merloni. And Lou, you were calling that game Friday night, Red Sox and Yankees. Of course, you didn't hold back. Right away, you're taking shots at the new, well, I guess, somewhat new Yankee Stadium. Not a fan, huh? No. No, I mean, it, it, it kind of looks the same, but, you know, it was the first time I stepped in there, and it was always one of my favorite parks to play in because of that rivalry, but it just, Although I'll say that it did have the same feel, right? It's too new, whatever. But in that eighth, ninth innings, things got a little hairy. It sounded like the old Yankee Stadium. But uh, no, nah, I just like the old Yankee Stadium. Not a big fan. Yeah. Stock standard. Winkowski would call it stock standard. Like he did yeah, Wrigley. Yeah. <laughs> like he called Wrigley. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, hey, we'll get we'll get into some of the stuff that happened over the weekend, but we got to start yeah. with Chris Sale, right? Because it sort of took over a big rivalry weekend. And I know the Red Sox aren't where they want to be right now, but the Sale yeah. injury just sucks. He's going to be out for until at least August 1st. And I would bet that it's going to be longer than that, just knowing the history of Sale. And the biggest thing for me, Lou, is just he finally looked like Chris Sale again. I'm not saying he was 2017 Sale, but... His last five starts, they had won four of them. They should have won all five of them if it wasn't for Jansen that one game against the Cardinals, just giving it up. And if you look at this rotation, they've already had they've had some issues, although Hulk threw the ball well over the weekend. Bayo was really good in this game tonight. So maybe they're starting to find something with those young guys. But it felt like they were depending, entering the season on a good, healthy Chris Sale, and now they're not going to have that guy. And it just... It sucks for the player. I feel bad for him. It, it's yeah. We know that it's an awful contract, but it just it sucks. Yeah, it does. And I'm with you because I caught a lot of his games and like the first three or four, right, were a mess. You know, you wasn't really sure what was going on. Then he had two or three good ones in a row. And I'm like, okay, I'm waiting for like that clunker and then another two or three. And this is the way it's going to go all year. Right. Mm-hmm. But he started stringing them together. And and I started going in every game like, okay, I'm, you know, I don't want to get my expectations up. I don't want to pretend like the new, you know, the old Chris Sale is back. But after about six or seven of them in a row, I was like, okay. Now it's time to roll. And it seems like just when I started feeling like that is when he walked off the mound in the fourth inning. And it was like, Jesus Christ. It made you realize that, like, really what you should appreciate, the fact he was taking the ball every fifth day was just a plus, right? But, no, it's it's. I do feel bad for him because we all know he hates it. You know, we all know he goes nuts and kills himself when he gets injured. But the reality is it's like there's something going on with I've never I've never heard of a guy break bones throwing a baseball. You know, whether yeah. it's like stress fractures or rib cages or, or it's like, I just don't understand it. And it's unfortunate, but I'm with you. Like, I don't really think you have an opportunity to probably see him this year. Maybe, maybe you do. But what I'm going to do right now is give you an opportunity to maybe see Cutter Crawford in that rotation for a while and see if he's a starter for the future or not. Yeah, and Crawford's throwing the ball well this year. So I'm all yeah. in and letting Crawford get the opportunity here because one of the other guys they signed, of course, in the offseason, Corey Kluber, has not worked out. And this is why this team is so reliant on Chris Sale. Of course, we know that Nate wanted a four-year contract. He ends up getting a three-year offer from the Red Sox. He ends up signing a two-year contract with the Texas Rangers. Michael Waka, it felt mm-hmm. like for whatever reason, they couldn't come to terms with him. I know that they were interested maybe last year. Waka wanted a multi-year deal. So you end up with Kluber. And the problem is you were depending on Kluber to be sort of the guy that you could just depend on to go out there every fifth day, right? You were thinking, okay, he gives you five innings and you're in the ball game. That's all you can yeah. ask for from Corey Kluber. But this to me is one of the biggest flops of the offseason because Kluber this season has just been atrocious. I felt bad from the other day. He's out there giving up eight hits in one inning, but now you can't even start the guy. He can't even be in, in your rotation. And yeah. that's where 
this Chris Sale trickle-down effect is really affecting this team. Like, the core, the Corey Kluber signing was just a massive whiff, and he was decent last year for Tampa. He was okay. He was a guy that you could depend on to start games, but the the Kluber thing really hurt them. Yeah, it did, and, you know, I... I you know, as far as putting teams together in the offseason, like everybody else, kind of shaking your head, like, okay, what is the plan here with this baseball team? And, and everybody was sort of wondering what was going on. And I would say this, of of all the guys they brought in, like, Kluber's really, I don't want, did the only miss, right? Like, is he the, he's the only, like, I mean, like, Jansen and Martin and those guys, so. Yeah, Martin's been good, Jansen's been good, yeah. to your point, yeah. And, I mean, yeah. Duvall was outstanding before the injury. He's basically Babe Ruth. Yeah, and you you know you brought in a guy like this kid Reyes tonight, who's really helped them out. I think solidified themselves defensively, and I wish he had a little more pop and hit that two run bomb tonight. But um, yeah, so Kluber, you get, it's sort of like you bring that guy in a one year deal, and that's the one thing they kill him for Evaldi. But like as you pointed out, like they really tried to get Nate. Yeah, you know, and I don't know if there was some stuff at the end of that year last year. And I know he was very vocal with the Ploiecki release, and right. he and Rich Hill, they all have the same agents. So you know, I can understand a veteran like a guy like Evaldi or a guy like Bogarts, given what they've gone through the last two years at the trade deadline, that was like, yeah, do I want to be here for three years? Is this the way it's going to be? Are we going to you know, play really well and not really feel like we're getting help at the deadline? So I'm out of here. Like, they'd be in Gresham for leaving, but I actually think that was probably more Nate. They actually tried to get him. So they settled on a guy in, in you know, Kluber for one year. Everybody too much of a big deal that this guy was the opening day starter. That's not their... People that don't know baseball think, oh, because he's his opening day starter, he's their best pitcher. No, he was lined up for it. He's a veteran. A lot of the other guys weren't ready to start the year, and they wanted to take it easy on Chris Sale. And now we understand why. So um, it didn't work. I actually feel bad for him because he's such a great pitcher, but he just he can't get anybody out. Like he just can't, he can't get anybody out, and he's on this roster primarily in case they're down 6-1 to one in the fourth and go out there and do what he did in Cleveland. Yeah, you're right. Like a former Cy Young Award winner, that's his job now. He's a mop-up guy, yeah. which is just, and the other night he's wearing one, right? Because it's like, well, yeah. you're not going to go to a good reliever at that particular point in time. He has a 713 no. ERA. 713 yeah. and a 165 whip. He's just been, he's been atrocious. I get, I guess the one critique, the other critique of the offseason would just be the fact that you didn't bring somebody in after you knew that Trevor Story was injured, right? At shortstop because, hey, Kike, yeah. big hit for Kike tonight. Like, it'd be nice to get him going. He's been a negative player this year, and we know Worse in defensive run save, most errors in Major League Baseball, all that. And the issue you have there is you knew Mondesi was hurt, too. The guy's coming off a torn ACL. Who? Yeah, remember that guy? They signed him, no. Mondesi? He, he actually, I don't know. I'm, I'm told he exists. I'm, I'm told he's actually a real person. <laughs> and then you think about the fact that Arroyo, we know that he's somebody that is a guy that's always hurt, right? And, like, he's a guy that needs to be available considering his role on the team, right? Like, he's a guy that's supposed to be not playing every day. So when you need him to play, he needs to be available. So that would be the the critique would be, I guess the biggest critique of the offseason would be, hey, you knew that Trevor Story wasn't starting the season. You're really going to go into the year and say, Kike Hernandez is going to be your everyday shortstop until Story gets yeah. back. That, to me, like, we were talking the other day, Lou, we were texting about Yu Chang. Like, who thought that Yu Chang being out would be, like, massive for yeah. this team? And look, Reyes, Reyes played well in this game tonight. So, I mean, that's a good yeah. thing going forward. But, yeah, the Kike thing has just been – it's been bad. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that was the biggest head-scratcher going into the year. I remember going down to spring training and having discussions with people in the organization. Like, I just don't understand what you do in the middle of the infield. But, like, the middle of the field in general, you know. And, and I get it. When Story went down, that's why Duvall became so important because he needed right-handed power. So it was more of like, 
offensively, how do we try to replace him? Well, we got to get Duvall. You know what I mean? That way, Kike can go in the infield. So they went out and got Duvall. But then again, like in, in core, I know, I'm listen, they love him. I get it. And he's, I like Duvall too. He's a good player. But they keep talking about him as a gold glove outfielder. Well, there's a difference between a gold glove left fielder and a gold glove center fielder. Like there's a really big difference. You know what yeah. I mean? So he's a great defensive left fielder. In center field, he'll, he'll compete. You know what I mean? But he's not a gold glove center fielder. He's a gold glove co- uh, corner outfielder. And then the two guys up the middle. I like Arroyo defensively. Doesn't have the greatest range, but if he gets to it, he's usually out, although he had a couple plays this weekend that he could have made. Kike Adams actually surprised about because I actually felt like the athleticism, I thought he could handle shortstop. It's really been all the throws. Like, I think you take that guy in center and put him at second base, and we saw tonight he made a really nice play. So I think at second, when you take the throws out of his mind, I think he can be a plus defender just that the throws have been in his dome like all year long. And he's like yeah. struggling throwing the baseball. But the lack of depth, you have two guys that haven't shown they can play every day, Brian. And you brought in – your depth was Mondesi, who was already hurt. Yeah. You know, and then it was like Yu Chang. And it was like – and like you said, like, the guy actually looked really good, right, for whatever it was, a couple of weeks before you get hurt. But there really wasn't anybody in the minor leagues either. And it was just like, how are you going to get by? And it, it, You can't be a good defensive baseball team if you're not strong up the middle. And not only are you not yeah. strong up the middle, but you have no depth up the middle. <laughs> that was always the biggest concern. <laughs> yeah, and this has now been a thing throughout the Heim Bloom era where they've been really bad defensively. I mean, if you look at it in Heim Bloom's tenure, it's really crazy to think about this. A guy that came from Tampa, you'd think, hey, we want to win any way we possibly can on the margins. Since Bloom took over in 2020, the Red Sox have made 283 errors. That's the most in baseball. They are minus 73 outs above average, 27th, and they're 22nd in defensive runs saved. And Lou, going back to a couple of years ago, it feels like there's always a hole with this team, right? A couple of years ago, it was first. And it's like, oh, let's bring Franchi up. We'll try him at first. Like almost like the Moneyball movie where it's like, hey, tell him it's easy to play first. We found out it wasn't. Now, Casas hasn't been good at first this year. He had a nice pick tonight, but he'll get better as he gets a little bit older here. But there's always something. There's always some area of this team where defensively they don't have the proper pieces. And I'm just starting to really get worried about Bloom. Does he just like not value defense? Like, What is this? One year it's first, one year it's short. Like, does he just not value defense like most other teams do? Because the numbers are what they are. And it passes the eye test, right? I mean, they look like one of the worst teams in baseball from a defensive perspective. Some of the issues they've had defensively are just, they're shocking for a team that is playing in this market and has this level of payroll. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 listen, I'm with you because you look at defensively. Now, early in the year, right, Kike had like seven errors in the first eight games at shortstop. So when yeah. your shortstop has that many errors, you know, the error totals are going to be up. But right. all the games that I did, I would say up to that Cincinnati series where they just uh, really started kicking the ball all over the place, like making real errors. They weren't a good defensive team, you know, by any means. But the reason why they weren't a great team was – for example, those plays by Arroyo the other night in New York, you know, like they all would have been great plays. But I'm watching other teams make them, you yeah. know, and, and it was like, okay, you know, it was almost a great play. We didn't finish it off. Like that's why they weren't a great defensive team, you know, like, like, like Yoshida's not kicking the ball around out in the left field, but we know he doesn't have great range. You know, Duvall, when he was in center, balls were dropping. We're like, it's a base hit, but, you know, maybe another center fielder dives and makes that catch. So there was a lot of that poor defense. You know, like they right. should be making great plays and they're not. They're just not great defenders, but they're not kicking the ball around other than maybe a shortstop where he had a lot of errors and Valdez's first three games or four games, whatever it was. Oh, yeah. The, 
the last 10 days were ridiculous, you know, like that whole Tampa, that homestand basically was ridiculous, you know, and um, they're just not a great defensive team. I remember being down in Tampa Bay when Duvall got hurt and they were, and, and Kike was struggling defensively. And I remember looking at this team saying, okay, the first catcher getting called up is Alfaro, who can't catch. <laughs> Their first middle infield is going to get called up is Valdez, who is a subpar defender. Their first outfield is going to get called up is Jared Duran. Now, to his credit, he's a lot better this year. But at the yeah. time, I was thinking, can't play center. Yeah. <laughs> and their first corner infielder called up is Bobby Dahlbeck. And I'm thinking, none of these guys can play defense. Yeah. None of them. And this team is not a good defensive team. And everybody they're about to call up in the minors can't play defense. And I'm just thinking, where is this thing headed? You know, like, how, how do we not have any defensive players? Like in the organization, in depth, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't either. And it's perplexing to me that they haven't figured out defense for the past, whatever, three, four years since Ian Bloom took over the organization. I mean, you go back to Dombrowski when they won the World Series in 2018. They were a really good defensive team. I mean, remember mm -hmm. how important first base defense was to him when he goes out and he gets a guy like Mitch Moreland and to see how bad they've been defensively since the change from Dombrowski to Bloom. It's it's really eye opening. I did want to get so we know right now the defense is going to be bad the rest of the season. It's probably going to get a little bit better as they get a little bit healthier. But the thing that stuck out to me recently, and this is huge, that they took two of three from the Yankees. It really did feel yeah. like without judge, if you lost two of those games and they had an opportunity to lose this game tonight, they won big hit by Kike late. If they lost this, it would have been really bad. But the thing that stuck out to me in their last 20, they're now six and 14. And it's the offense. That's the one thing that yeah. you were supposed to be able to rely on entering the season. And you look at it during this 20-game stretch, or I should say this is previous to tonight, this, the 19-game stretch, 27th in runs, 20th in average, 25th in slugging percentage, 12 home runs during that stretch. In a 19-game span, that's 29th in baseball. They haven't been hitting with runners in scoring position, 44 RBIs, which is 25th during that stretch. And it felt like now, I'm hoping that this weekend gets Rafi going, where he had the home run against Cole, who he seems to always homer off. He homered again, of course, on Saturday. But really, the only guy during the stretch, and now, ironically, Yoshida goes over for the weekend, but he was the only guy hitting there. I'm just surprised to see it happen this quickly, Lou, with the entire lineup. Like, I can't remember a time recently where all the guys on the Red Sox, except basically one player, were cold. Everybody was cold besides Yoshida. It's just, it's surprising. You'd think that the offense would have to carry them to a bunch of wins. And we've seen when the offense isn't good, this team has no chance. Yeah, no, it is. It is a surprise. I remember, it's funny too, because it just sort of stopped. I did the, the West Coast trip in San Diego and, and LA and going into San Diego, talking to some of the guys I know over there, like Mark Sweeney, you know, his local guy does games out there and other people with the Padres. And they're like, what's up with this team? You know, like they're at the time they're winning a lot of games and they're scoring yeah. a lot of runs. And I'm like, well, you're going to see it. Like you're going to see one through nine grinding it out. You're going to see one night, one through four winning a ball game. The next night you're going to see, you know, six, seven, eight, nine winning a ball game. And it's how it played out. Remember the first night was Devers with the two bombs. The next night was Valdez, the bottom of the only three run bomb that won a game. And they're like, wow, you're right. This team, you know, this lineup just grinds. And then it just stopped. And yeah. a lot of that had to do with Valdez and Durant. Both of those guys, like really after a three-run homer by Valdez, I don't know if he's got a hit since. You know, I know he got one down in AAA at a bomb, but and Duran has been ice cold, although he's looked better in the last, you know, whatever it was. Yeah, a couple hits tonight. Too. Yeah. So, and that to me has been a big difference, you know, is that like it sort of stopped at the bottom of the order and then Devers got really cold, you know. So it's, um, 
it's it's all about the offense. You know, when they did that that last stretch, we had I think I had the stat the last game I did against Tampa where five and twelve. You know, the last seventeen they averaged like three and a half runs a game, and they were averaging five point six before that when they were good. I yeah. mean, two over two runs, right? I mean, you gotta you know, that's a huge difference, and they scrapped them out this weekend. And glad they did because they got outstanding pitching performances. But you know they better put it put it on Connor Seapole tomorrow night. I can yeah. tell you that right now. Hey, well he throws batting practice. We witnessed that last year we'll when see. he was scared to throw against the Toronto Blue Jays. So hopefully they'll yeah, we'll get see. the Red Sox going. But yeah, you yeah. mentioned Duran. Now he has the two hits tonight, but previously to tonight, his last 108 plate appearances, 192 with a 5.32 OPS. And the biggest thing for him is like there's always going to be hit and miss stuff with him, or I should say swing and yeah. miss. Right? It's just it's in him. Yeah. But the launch angle was at 4.9 degrees. So anything under 10 degrees is on the ground. The ground ball rate was 51.6%. You look at the previous 72 plate appearances when he was red hot, he was hitting 406 and 1116 OPS. The launch angle is 14.4 degrees. So that's a line drive. It's up 10 degrees from where he's at been recently. And the ground ball rate was at 33.3% compared to 51.6. So I don't know what... Do you notice anything, Lou? Like, what was he doing at the beginning of the year that helped him to have this great start? Did guys just figure him out, sort of like what we saw last year? Or is there something he's not doing that he was before? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I I, I think the league kind of um, saw some things with him. You know, remember when he came up, it was a can't hit touch a fastball, right? You yeah. cannot touch a fastball, elevate a little bit. He can't do it. And he, he changed his approach, his stance at least, his hands, his leg kick, everything. And he started getting it. So, the old scouting report, they were challenging him for a while, and he cleaned that up, and it didn't work anymore. So then they went, and he started seeing a bunch of change-ups. Like, that was, to me, the, and, that, and the change-up can get in your dome. You know, all of a sudden, now it's like, i got to stay back, and here comes that fastball, and now it's by you. So I think there was an adjustment period for him. Now, it lasted longer than maybe you would have liked. I think he has looked a lot better here in the last week, you know, even though he isn't a ton of hits, but he's looked better. So the question is, is he, for me, is he going to get enough at-bats? You know, this is why I was really surprised about the Tapia thing. Like, I really didn't understand that. And I still really not sure if I do or not. Because and I know Core was like, well, he's a good athlete. This is what the league is going to. And it's like, okay, well, what's, so what's in Tapia? And Durant yeah. could go down the AAA and play every day because Duvall's coming back. Like, you, and you want Duvall's bat in the lineup. And I know they're going to try to get Durant in there. But a young kid, and I know he's not that young, but in terms of big league experience, to all of a sudden turn into a guy that plays every fourth day or third day and pinch hits occasionally is a completely different role. One that Toppy is used to, and he's not. But again, like I said, he looked good here tonight. Hopefully he continues to make those adjustments because he does impact the game with his legs. It's, it's fun to watch him run. There's no question. Yeah, when he just took second, like, <laughs> I don't know how he does that. Like, the guy is so fast. Yeah, you know what it is? And watch this, because we'll probably talk about it tomorrow if he actually hits a double. He turns the bases like nobody. Like, like he's so he's so athletic. A lot of guys have to like bow out, and you know, and he actually almost like runs to it, takes a couple steps to his right, hits the base, and he's in a straight line to second base. Like he is so athletic and strong that when he rounds first or he rounds second, it is such a straight line that not many people could do. And even though he is fast, like that turn saves him about three or four steps, and he's just he's electric. Fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I was with you too. I was kind of surprised at the Tapia thing because yeah. you think about it, he's a good pinch hitter too. And he's, to your point, he's a bench guy. He's been doing, mm -hmm. like, he's capable of doing that. So that was shocking to me. And like Duran 
having sort of like a platoon role, I don't know how valuable that is for his progress, right? You almost rather him right. just be playing every day in AAA. So that was a weird decision. So I heard you on Friday night talking about Rafi, and I didn't realize how bad this was. His numbers against right-handed pitching before uh, tonight, he was hitting 244. The on-base percentage was 298. And you you look at it, you're thinking, well, Rafi has crushed righties his entire career. His numbers have actually this year not average and on-base percentage, but they've actually been better against lefties this year. His slugging, 532, 838 OPS. So he's actually been doing some damage against lefties, which he hasn't yeah. done throughout his career. But to see the numbers and to see him struggling this much against right-handed pitching, that was shocking to me. Now, he basically went a month where he walked three times. That's obviously right. been an issue where he's pretty much swinging at everything. But do you think this weekend sort of gets Rafi headed in the right direction? Or do you think that are you a little bit worried about where he's at this year? Because I thought Rafi would be like fringy MVP conversation after getting the big yeah. contract. And I know there's there's some bad luck there. I get it. OK, like. People want to reference like his hard hit numbers. I get it. There's some bad luck, but still the numbers should be a lot better than where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all about righties because it's two thirds of his at bats. And, you know, he's a guy that's had a 920, 950 OPS versus righties and, uh, you know, hitting 300. And this year it's just not there. And when you look at it, uh, the biggest difference, if you look at his off speed stuff, you know, not his breaking ball, but off speed numbers. Going into that cold game, he was hitting like 154 up off speed. And again, oh. that's a number that he's hit 300 on. That's a number that he has slugged 600 on. Like he just hammers changeups. So it's off speed, basically changeups and splits, right? So he usually hammers that pitch. There's a reason why Garrett Cole was throwing him a lot of changeups. Now, on, a, on that night, he, he hit the changeup double in the gap, and he took the changeup the other way for the homer. But there's a reason why Cole went to it, because he's not hitting him. His body is leaning. His body is moving forward. He's not staying back. He's not, you know, he can't stop his body to allow his hands to go. And when your body floats and your hands get away from your body, you know, all of a sudden you're out in front of changeups like he hasn't been in his entire career. So it was great to see against Cole. Great to see it because Cole doesn't really throw that changeup all that much. He was throwing it to Rafi because you can't hit it. He hasn't hit it all year long. So yeah. you, you've got to turn it around. Do you think it's tough for like coaches to actually help Rafi because like he's such a unique yes. hitter? Is it difficult? And rather than like say like JD Martinez, right, where he always had the iPad, he could just look at the iPad and yep. sort of figure out what was wrong with him. Is it more difficult yep. to do that with a guy like Rafi just because he's so unique? Yeah, it is, and it's tough, difficult too to kind of analyze him, you know, because he is unique. But I will say this: like we we give him so much credit for being a bad ball hitter. You know, because occasionally, you know, hit a ball in his ankles, hit a ball in his eyes, but he's still best when he swings at strikes. Everybody in the league is best when they swing at strikes. So when he's, but early in the, it's funny because early in the counts, sometimes I feel like the 1 0 curveball that his feet swings at makes it 1 1 instead of 1 2 0, right? Like, I feel yeah. like he's over aggressive the first pitch or two and gets himself 1 1 instead of 2 0 or 0 2 instead of 2 0. You know what I mean? Over aggressive. But then, Gore is like, but then he takes a couple fastballs early in counts. I want him to be more aggressive. So this is a guy that's like so aggressive. You, you, you don't really know how to talk about it, right? Yeah. It's like, I want him to be aggressive, but I also want to be a little more patient. Yeah, and he's such a freak, you know, that um, I think it's hard to kind of talk about like what we're looking for. But I do know one thing is as far as keeping his body back, letting the ball get a little deeper and using his hands. 
Yeah, it is frustrating because you're right. It always seems like he's in a bad cup. Yeah. Like it's 1-2 yeah. or it's 0-2. Oh, he's like never in. It doesn't seem like. When's the last time Rafi's been in a 3-1 count, right? Like you have to miss badly for Rafi not to offer at it. So, yeah, it is something that he's never in like advantageous counts. Like Mookie was yeah. always in advantageous counts, right? It doesn't feel mm -hmm. like that's even like a guy that not nearly as talented, but Turner. Turner's always in good counts, right? Because... I, I love Look watching him hit because he just follows everything off. Like it, he's not even trying to do anything with the pitch. He'll just follow it off to get himself in a good count, get a better pitch. I, I do wish there was some of that with Rafi, but yeah, it's, it's just, so unique. Yeah. I'll say this about Turner. Like, yeah, you're right. Like, I feel like when he gets 0 2 1 2, just bank on three or four foul balls. He gives you professional at bat. Yeah. You know, I know the numbers are there. I know what JD Martinez is doing, but just Justin Turner is so much better for this baseball team than JD Martinez. I just feel like JD sort of just wore thin. You know, the whole, like, iPad, you know, like, he, he gets his at-bat and he's just in the video and hitting. It's like, you know, I don't know if he was part of the team, you know, by the end of it. It was just all about, like, his at-bat and Turner's complete opposite. So, yeah, remember um, in 20 great at-bat. Remember in 2020, Lou, when JD was complaining about it, like every fourth day, like to talk yeah. about because he couldn't huddle around the iPad because of the COVID situation. It completely yeah. derailed the season. It was completely in his head. And I'm sure that obviously it's important to him because we saw the next year in 2021, he looked like JD Martinez again when he got his iPad back. So clearly he needed that. But Bale, I thought, threw the ball really well tonight. He's been really good. I mean, the last eight starts, it's three earned runs or less. And in seven of Eight, eight of those right. it's less than yeah. three like he's been really effective not a big strikeout guy but ton of ground ball rates during that stretch second in major league baseball and ground ball rate everything's on the ground so i thought he threw the ball really well how come i'm not banking on how going forward just because we know what he is second time through the order it, it was better but it happens to him all the time but you called the whitlock game on friday night and it's interesting mm. He threw uh, those sweepers are really effective. I think it was what, like 11 swings and 10 whiffs and the velocity still not where it was a couple of years ago. And obviously he's coming back from the elbow situation that he was dealing with. But what did you make of Whitlock the other night? Because that I didn't expect that type of outing from Whitlock where it was the sweeper was pretty effective for him. Well, I'll say this. It's actually it's still a slider. You know, um, I know that Savant's still calling it a sweeper and we even had it as a sweeper, but. When he went in his rehab start, he came back and there was like a report that he's throwing the sweeper, that he threw a new pitch. And when he walked back into that clubhouse, it was actually like the running joke. You know what I mean? And and the people are like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what's throwing a the sweeper? They're like, no. And everybody started laughing. And I actually said something to him and he just shook his head. He's like, no, don't throw a sweeper. I don't know why they said it. It's a slider, you know, because it doesn't really have much horizontal break. You know, the sweeper is yeah. like, what, 16, 18 inches horizontal break. And it does. It's, it's a true slider. The thing with Witt is that he found his changeup when he went away, you know, and you know, I remember that first game in Tampa I had with him, this changeup was 86, 87. I'm like, I, I have no idea what this pitch is. Like, it's not, it's not his changeup. I don't know what it is. It's like a BP fastball almost. And now the other night he was throwing an 80, 81 and it's the vertical break, the vertical drop he had on. It was like 29, 30 inches. Now he's 39. So yep. we're talking about eight, nine inches of vertical drop and taking about, you know, uh, four or five you know, miles an hour off the, off the, off the fastball, the changeup, I should say. So all of a sudden now it's a swing and miss. All of a sudden now it's like, I'm way out in front of it because there's a velocity difference. I'm also swinging and missing because it's dropping more. Changeup is absolute filth right now. And the slider yeah. was really, really good. And he was pounding the zone with his sinker. He was impressive. The other night. Yeah. And that's the thing too. Like 
you mentioned it, the difference in terms of his fastball and the changeup. Like he was at the beginning of the season, he was never throwing his changeup harder in his career. And he was never throwing yeah. his fastball like with less velocity. It had been his it's slowest bad. fastball and it was his hardest changeup. So it was like n- none of the stuff was playing. But yeah, that the he's finally got like the break back on that pitch where it, the two starts goes at 39 inches, which that's better than his season in 2021 when he was like yeah. legitimately one of the best relievers in all of Major League Baseball. So do you think we're going to end this season thinking that he's a starter or are we still going to be debating hey, is he a starter or is he a reliever? Do you think we'll have that settled or is still going to be debating that entering 2024? Yeah, isn't what that what this season's really all about with a lot of these guys? Yeah, the point? young guys. Like, and, and, you know, it's funny because I know everybody bitches about this team because that's like the cool thing to do in town. And they shred this offseason. They say there's no talent, and it's a 500 team, and then they rip them for not contending. And it's like, you thought they were going to suck. They're a 500 team. They kind of, you know, they are what they are. And it's like, unfortunately, and not that I agree with it, because I like to see this team spend some money and start acting more like the Red Sox. But this year really is about Whitlock, Hauk, now Crawford, and Bayo. You know, maybe even Winkowski, you know, out in that bullpen and try to figure out if you have four young starters. And I know what I think, uh, what's what, 27, but still under control starters moving forward. And maybe it takes the whole year, you know, because I was talking to David Cohen about it. Like, how do you know the difference between a starter and a reliever? You know, just ask him about it. And he's like, well, he actually felt like sinker ballers are tough to be starters, you know, because you got to be consistent with it. But these guys, yeah. they're special. I mean, they got a pretty good one. But he's like durability. He's like, so you really won't know till August and September. And I kind of agree with him. So these guys are out there in that rotation. It's going to be an okay start here and there or a bad start here and there. And just you've got to find out what they are. By September, you'll know. All right, Lou, before I let you go, most important question here is yeah. we've been seeing this epidemic in Major League Baseball right now where Jemai Webster got hit with a line drive the other day. And then John <laughs> Sterling on Saturday got hit with a ball when he was calling the game in the Yankees booth where it hit him in the head. He had a Band-Aid on during the game today. Have yeah. you, uh, well, I mean, you're a former player, so you'll you'll be able to handle yourself if it comes your way, but have you yeah. had any close encounters yet? Or has anybody in the booth that you've been in when you've been calling games, whether it was Dave O'Brien or Will Fleming, Joe Castiglione, have you guys had any close encounters yet? Uh, in the radio booth, I think a few years back, there was one that was smoked, but it was more towards Will's direction. And I'll, I'll say this. This is the biggest problem. Now, Jemai's got no excuse. Yeah. I'm not going to let him off the hook. He's got that <laughs> ball was smoked. I get it. But he's got no excuse. And you can see Sterling doing the same thing. And this is when I'm in the booth, okay, I am, you know, five, whatever it is, five sections, five levels above. And I can't, I don't want to look down in the field and call a baseball game. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, I, cause I can't see, you know, the pitch shape and see the catcher setting up in and out. It used to be, I couldn't right. see the signals, but right. But now pitch com, I like to see the signals. So you watch the monitor. So when you watch the monitor, like you're watching at home, because I want, I, I want to talk about what you see, you know, as yeah. a, the viewer. So when you watch the monitor and you see the foul ball, the foul right back, you're sort of like, okay, whatever. And then all of a sudden you look up and it's in your dome. You know what I mean? And that's what happened <laughs> to Sterling. So I understand what the hell he's doing because you just, you, you literally just watch the monitor and you see foul ball. And every once in a while, like, oh, damn, that might be coming close to you. By the time you look up, it's like in your face. So, no, if it comes to me, it's absolutely going to drill me. I am going to drop it. There's no question in my mind if it doesn't hit me in the face. Yeah, just make sure that Joe doesn't get hit. We can't have that. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. 
Well, I, yeah, if, if, if I'm in there with him, I would definitely try to dive and deflect. Yeah, that's, I mean, the Sterling one was hilarious, too. Like, now that we know he's okay, it was hilarious. He's, that actually did hit me. That's, <laughs> you, you tell me, when you, we all heard the audio, right, yesterday, whatever it was, last night. Did you sort of think it was fake? Like, I, I did. Like, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, it didn't really hit him. It's, oh, that hit me. Oh, and you're like, and he goes right to the game. You're like, that didn't hit him. You see the video tonight, you're like, they got freaking smoked. And he stayed in the game, man. Give him some credit. He stayed in the game. That was unbelievable. So I hope that doesn't happen to you. That is Lou Maloney, of course, calling the Red Sox this year on Nesson and on the Red Sox radio network as well. Lou, what's the schedule like coming up? I know you're calling this game tomorrow night for Nesson. Yeah, I got uh, the Colorado series for Nesson. And I have Friday night with the Yankees. And again, uh, national televised to go the rest of the weekend, right? Fox and ESPN next weekend so i'll do the next three against the rockies i'll do friday night against uh, the yankees and i think next monday i think i'm going to minnesota uh, that's radio i'll be out there with wolf fleming so it picks up a little bit now for me so it's one of those where i do four or five take a day or two off a series off do some more so back and forth it's fun all right that is lou Maloney. lou thank you so much for the time i really appreciate it have a good call tomorrow night metric man you are the absolute best brian always a pleasure pal Great stuff there from my buddy Lou Merloni on the Sox and the Yankees and the unfortunate news of Chris Sale. All right, so I did want to get to this. One of the things that has stuck out to me watching the NBA Finals is just how easy the Nuggets make offense look against a good Heat defense, right? And the reason I bring this up, of course, is because of the Celtics. And the conclusion that I keep coming back to is they're just willing to play the way that the game requires, right? And the Celtics... They didn't do that against Miami, right? The Celtics were so rigid. They were so committed to getting up a crazy amount of threes because that's what they did all season long. That's the one way they played all year long. They didn't really have a curveball, so to speak. If their threes weren't going down, we gave you the numbers all season long. They would lose. So in the finals, you look at this Nuggets team, they're taking what the Heat is giving them right now. So if you look at this Nuggets team in the finals, they have a 117.9 offensive rating. Only one team was north of 117.3 this season. So basically, they're playing like the second best offense in the league in the NBA Finals. So they're playing like the number two offense in the NBA in the NBA Finals against a good Heat defense, right? The Celtics during the Eastern Conference Finals had just a 112.2 offensive rating. Only five teams were worse than that this season. All lottery teams, of course. The Magic, The Rockets, the Pistons, the Spurs, the Hornets. A bunch of those teams, of course, were trying to get the number one pick. Only the Spurs were able to get that. But that's how bad it was for the Celtics against the Heat. So the Celtics were playing like a high lottery team against the Heat compared to the Nuggets, who were playing like a top two offense in the entire NBA, right? So why weren't the Celtics more consistent? Because we're seeing it right now with the Nuggets. And I get it. Jokic is the best player in the world right now. I don't think anybody can argue to the contrary based on the way that he's playing. So yes, they have a better superstar than Jason Tatum right now. I understand all that, but it's more to it because you start to look at this thing and look, we know part of it was Jalen was really bad with the eight turnovers in game seven. We know Brogdon was banged up and all that. But the other part is they just kept jacking up threes like I alluded to. So if you look at the Celtics, they took 38.1 threes per game in that series, they hit just 30.3%, which is horrible, right? It's a really bad number. And they took a ton of them, 38.1. You look at the Nuggets, they're taking 25.3 threes a game and they're hitting 37.6%. So they're hitting their threes. That's obviously important. But think about it. The Nuggets who are are shooting better from deep are actually taking 12.8 fewer threes per game against this Heat team and they're destroying the Heat's defense. 
So part of that is, yes, Jokic is really good in sort of that floater area. The guys get incredible touch around the basket. We've seen that. But they're also attacking the areas where the Heat are not a good defensive team. The Celtics didn't do that, right? So if you look at the Celtics, they attempted just 44.9 twos a game against the Heat. They hit 59.2% of them. But more on that number in a second here, because the Nuggets, they're attempting 53 twos a game, and they're hitting 57.1%. So the Celtics actually shot better from two than the Nuggets did from a percentage standpoint, but they took eight fewer per game. So here's the thing. If you look at the regular season, only one team took fewer than 44.9 twos per game. That was the Dallas Mavericks. So the Celtics, by the way, that 59.2% from two-point territory that they shot against the Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals, that would have been the best in the NBA this season. But like I said, they only took... 44.9 per game. That would have been the second fewest in the entire NBA this season. And here's the other component that sort of aggravates you. And you start to think, well, did the Celtics look at this type of stuff? Because if you look at the Heat, teams this season shot 69.1% against the Heat in the restricted area, that little circle right there. That was 26 in the NBA. So they did not do a good job protecting the basket. In that short mid-range area, teams shot 49.9%. That was the worst in the NBA. And then you look at just On twos in general, this past season, teams shot 56.9% on twos against the Miami Heat. You know where that ranked in the NBA? 29th. Only the Spurs were worse. So it just doesn't make any sense the way that the Celtics attack the Heat. So instead of attacking what the Heat are not good at, which is protecting the rim, which is protecting the paint, the Celtics actually let them off the hook. And we're seeing what a team is doing when they take advantage of Miami's weaknesses in this team, of course, the Denver Nuggets. You beat the Heat with twos. You don't beat the Heat with threes. The Nuggets realize that and look at their offense. It's unstoppable. The Celtics all season long were obsessed with threes. How many times did we hear after a game when Joe Mazzulla would be asked about the defense and he would say, we didn't hit enough shots? That's what he always brought up, right? So it felt like this was so important and so pivotal to the Celtics to get all these threes up. It was staring them in the face. You can shoot a high number of twos against the Heat and you can beat them. And that's the most aggravating part of looking back now at this Miami series and watching the NBA Finals. Look, maybe the Celtics lose that series to Miami anyway. But the most aggravating part to me is we're watching this Denver Nuggets team that is really well coached and we're seeing what a well coached team can do to take advantage of some of the issues that this Miami team has. The Celtics never push those buttons. And if they just looked at their numbers, they would have said, maybe we should take more twos, right? The Celtics offense was just horrible to watch at times during that series. And when something is just sitting there for you, how do you not take advantage of your opponent's weakness? It's embarrassing looking back at it. And I just think about it from this angle. Imagine if it was Bill Belichick, right? Where think about all the things that Bill's done throughout his career. I'll just give you one example. So 2014, the Patriots, and we were talking about the 2014 season earlier, two references of the 2014 Patriots today. But anyway, getting back to my original point here, if you think about it, the Patriots had the best quarterback on the planet in Tom Brady in 2014. They played an Indianapolis Colts team. We all remember, what were they bad at? They could not stop the run, right? So what did the Patriots do? Jonas Gray, you're going to run the ball a million times. He has this crazy, I remember a couple weeks later, the guy's cut because he's showing up late to meetings, whatever it was. But they just said, Jonas Gray, some random dude, you're going to run the ball down Indianapolis's throat because Indy can't stop the run. They did the same thing in the playoff game, the deflate gate game, remember, where LeGarrette Blunt just ran it down their throat. That's what the Patriots did. They said, OK, yes, we have the best quarterback in the world, but this team cannot stop the run. So 
Our identity as an offense all year had been Tom Brady throwing the football, right? Tom Brady's great. Tom Brady's an MVP caliber player. We are going to throw the ball all over you. Brady's going to rip you apart with Gronk, et cetera, right? That's what the Patriots were built on offensively. But they said, hey, this team has a really big weakness. And that weakness is they cannot stop the run. You know what we're going to do? We're going to take advantage of that. That's what the Nuggets are doing to the Miami Heat. They're saying they can't protect the rim. They are bad defending the twos. Let's get in there. Let's get closer to the basket. It's a crazy concept. We're looking at our opponent. We're saying, hey, they really fucking suck stopping people at the rim. Let's attack the basket. It was just, it's very good coaching by Denver. And it just, it's so irritating watching these NBA finals and saying, why didn't the Celtics do more than that? They decided instead of, hey, let's take advantage of Miami Miami's weakness. They said, hey, let's take fewer twos than basically everybody in the NBA but one team this year. That's what they decided to do. With this information that they had, that this team is bad defending the two, they decided let's take fewer. It's just, it's unbelievable to me. And by the way, the finals, they've been so fun to watch because Jokic is a genius. We chatted, Jamie and I talked about that on the last pod. The guy's unbelievable, right? But it just, it kind of, it's like inevitable at this point, right? I know it's 3-1 now. The final game is going to be on Monday, you would think. I can't see the Nuggets losing that game, but... Has not been a great entertaining finals. It's entertaining to watch Jokic and make all this history and Murray and all that. But it just feels like the Heat, they just, they stay close. They're in these games, but they're just not going to be able to pull it off, unfortunately for Miami. But Denver, clearly the better team. And they are being coached well. Like Spolstra had a great series against the Celtics. It's not like you look at Mike Malone, he's matching Spolstra. Spolstra obviously is considered the best coach in the NBA. I'm not saying that. Mike Malone's out coaching him, but at least he's putting his players in a good position. The Celtics didn't have that. All right, I did want to get to a hiring the Celtics made. There, Woj, the first to report it. Our buddy B-Rob confirmed it. Charles Lee is going to be joining Joe Mazzulla's staff. We already know about Sam Cassell. So he was Mike Budenholzer's top assistant in Milwaukee. And he interviewed for a bunch of head coaching opportunities. The Pistons, the Raptors, the Suns, and the Bucks, of course. So he was with the Hawks from 2014 to 2018. And the Bucks until this past season, of course. So these are guys in Sam Cassell and Charles Lee who have been around the league for a while. And both guys have been, as I just mentioned with Charles Lee's resume, they've been head coaching candidates. So Cassell, we talked about having that strong personality, right? That's massive, having that strong personality. Cassell will challenge players, okay? And the other component is you have replacements that you now are looking at like these guys are here for Joe, right? Where last year is just kind of weird. And I know the Celtics want Joe to work out, but the way things ended last season, and if he doesn't make changes to some of the stuff that he's doing schematically, I wish he tried more stuff during the regular season. Like he never went back to the two big lineup after Rob came back from the second injury, that type of stuff. They never tried like a completely small ball unit with Jason Tatum being the biggest guy on the court. Like that would have been fun to watch. Just experimenting with different types of stuff so you have an idea of what it would look like in the postseason. That's what the regular season is for. So, and the other thing is just he can't be so rigid on the threes, right? And playing a certain way. Like he's got to be more versatile when it comes to that. So hopefully these guys can help him when it comes to that. And secondarily, unfortunately, I hate to say it this way, but if Joe Mazzulla is not having a good season, not having a good start to the year like we saw this past season. They were great to start 21-5, and five, but then we started to see some issues pile up with Missoula. If he's not having a good season, you have legitimate replacements. And I hate to say it that way, but Cassell could be a head coach, and definitely Charles Z could be a head coach. You would think that both these guys are going to have an opportunity if the Celtics 
can be a little bit better and more competent than they were in the playoffs this past season. And I know they were one win away from the NBA Finals, but they looked really bad at times. They had really bad losses. This team could not lose like a normal, in a normal fashion. So if that's the case, you have these two guys and you look competent next year in the postseason. You're not doing all these crazy turnovers. You're not shooting a bunch of threes when you don't need to take them, right? All that different type of stuff. These guys are probably going to have an opportunity to get head coaching jobs next offseason. But if it gets ugly this year, well, the Celtics now have really obvious candidates that they can promote to be the head coach of the team. So now you look at it and these two guys are going to be incredibly motivated, right? Because they want to put their stamp on the team because of what I alluded to. They want to get a head coaching opportunity. So these guys are going to be getting into the building. They're going to be trying to put their spin on things with this team. And I'm saying that in a good way. They're going to be trying to get their hands in there get their hands dirty, try to fix this thing for the Celtics along with Joe Mazzulla, but they're going to be working as hard as anybody because they want to be on that path. They want to get head coaching opportunities. So if you weren't going to move on from Joe, which clearly when Brad had that end of the season press conference, if you will, we kind of knew that they weren't going to move on from Joe. You needed to get established assistance if you weren't going to move on from Joe, right? And the Celtics did that. Give Brad Stevens and give this front office a ton of credit where they went out and they got guys that are highly regarded in the league. And now it just feels like, from my perspective, this coaching staff makes a lot more sense. Because, yeah, we talked about Ben Sullivan going to Houston. That makes sense because he worked for Ime. Nobody's shocked by that whatsoever. And the way that things ended here, he wasn't going to get a lot of credit entering next season if he wanted to move on and be a head coach in the future, right? He wasn't going to get a lot of praise for what was going on with the Celtics, right? So now you look at it with Joe it was a really weird dynamic. And I've said on multiple occasions, they did a really good job from a professional standpoint. Everybody was pulling the rope in the same direction from a coaching staff perspective. But now it's like Joe has his guys, right? Where he's getting help from Brad Stevens in the front office, where they're bringing in assistant coaches to help him. Because especially after they lost Damon Stoudemire, it was just too many guys to lose. And you needed more help for the young coach. I was surprised that they never added like a veteran head coach. I know they tried to go out there and get... Jay Laranega, who I believe at the time, yeah, was on the Clippers staff. They tried to get a guy like him to kind of be the older assistant coach. Now you have that with Joe Mazzulla. So I just hope for Joe Mazzulla's sake that he listens to these guys. And these guys certainly have a ton of experience. Sam Cassell as a player and as a coach. And Charles Lee being around really good players in the NBA, like the Giannis Antetokounmpo's of the world. I just think this is a really good move for the Celtics to go out there and get these assistants. I'm surprised they got Charles Lee after they already had Sam Cassell. I figured that Charles Lee was not going to be coming here if Sam Cassell was here. So it's a really good job by the Celtics to get these pieces in place because as we saw last year, Joe Mazzulla desperately needs help on his coaching staff. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in that number 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 
1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.